Welcome to the Unveiled Podcast. My name is Peg Peters. Today we have a really exciting guest on the show. Her name is Valerie McCarroll, and uh, she I'm going to let her introduce herself, but she is a psychedelic therapist, uh, and uh, she has written some really powerful material on training guides uh, and really exploring the idea of non-duality and mysticism when it comes to psychedelics. And we're going to really explore that uh, tension between the, the medical model of psychedelics, such as Alive and Well, and this rising new kind of orientation toward non-duality, which is really important in this field. So welcome to the show, Valerie. Thank you so much for coming on Unveiled. Thanks for having me. It's, it's Valeria. Oh, Valeria. So it's Valeria with more of an Valeria. air sound? Yeah. Valeria. Yeah, yeah, like Valerian root. Yeah. Ooh, that's a great, okay, that helps remember it then. Yeah, yeah. Root. Is, is that actually where it came from? Uh, it's a family name. I was named after my great aunt, who was named after my great great grandmother, who was a German, you know, daughter of a German count. Um, okay. Wow. Yeah. Valeria. I love yeah. I love that name, and uh, yeah, I'm really I'm really glad you uh, gave me the you know get that connection, so my brain can remember that. It's it's better than malaria. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there. Wow. <laughs> nice way to nice frame that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would love for you, 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 um, I read one place where you talked about kind of, you situated yourself and position yourself in, in kind of the context in which you, you know, where you live. And, and I'd love if you could do that, because it just, I mean, I, maybe it's just a small paragraph about your bio, but it was really about situating yourself. And, and I'd love for you to just kind of frame who you are and how you want to present yourself, because I think that's really important as we do this work, uh, because we are grounding our bodies in a lived reality and a lived context. And I think that's really important. So, yeah, do you mind just kind of introducing who you are? Sure, sure. Thank you for that. Um, I, I like I like situating myself anytime I give a, a talk sort of to make my lenses overt, right? Because hmm. everybody has a, a biased perspective to one degree or another. And um, so I am, you know, I'm sort of name some of my lenses. I'm a white, cisgendered being in a female body with a non-binary soul and i'm sort of reconciling those two aspects of my identity perpetually um i have a mostly able body that navigates chronic pain and um identify as neurodiverse and highly sensitive and i'm a survivor of sexual trauma those are sort of some of my my lenses um I am formally trained as a psychotherapist, a somatic psychotherapist and a yoga teacher and a psychedelic guide. Um, and I live in the, I live in what's called Sebastopol, California, which is the coastal Miwok territory um, of the West coast. Mm. So those are sort of some of the, the aspects yeah. of my identity. The lenses that you bring to this work, and uh, I, I just, I just found that very refreshing. That you're like, I'm putting my lenses on the table, and here's who I am as I'm kind of exploring this work. Um, and so, I, yeah, I just found that a really, really refreshing way to kind of introduce yourself. So, thank you so much. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm here just on the lands of the Samath people. These are the First Nations, uh, the Matsqui and uh, Samath First Nations in the west coast of uh, Canada. And uh, I just want to honor their land. And these are the people of this, uh, people of the river, as they're called. And they're mm -hmm. the ones who've kept this land and this medicine for us to partake in and use. And uh, for me, I'm just learning of what does it look like to do uh, decolonizing of psychedelics as you are in relationship with indigenous brothers and sisters. And, uh, and so that's one of, you know, a big passion of mine is how do we connect 
uh, with ancient land-based wisdom that really helps us understand the power of connection uh, as we work with plant medicines. And so um, that's been a huge learning for me. And I think uh, it has a lot to say uh, when we're talking about non-duality because mm -hmm. the worldview of an indigenous, all indigenous peoples is that there is spirit in everything, spirit in river, in mountain, in us, in everything. And so in that we are all one and the process is coming back to wholeness, coming back to our connection. That's at the foundation of everything they believe. And so I wanna honor those people in the land in which we live and honor that this is their medicine that we are learning to work with in new ways. So. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an important uh, aspect of my heart cry on this too. Absolutely. Uh, Valerie, I want to dive into most, uh, and I'm going to start right into the deep waters here because uh, I, this is kind of how, you know, I came across your work. Uh, I came across an incredible um, academic article that you recently wrote, and I'm going to give the title of it. It's called uh, Mysticizing Medicine, Incorporating Non-Dualism into the Training of Psychedelic Guides. And this was, uh, I think, a piece that you did for uh, Integral uh, Transpersonal Psychology for the California Institute of Integral Studies. You can find it online. Um, and to me, this this piece was was a re really unique framing of the challenge that's happening right now in in psychedelics. And I'll, I'll situate the framing like this. Um, I think there's a couple of models operating right now. There is what I would call the, the the medical model, and that's and there's lots in that stream, right? And it's typically um, it's been seen in uh, in all the clinical trials. This is a maps kind of model: two therapists, one client. We're going to give them, you know, a dose of, of psilocybin. We're going to have this, you know, three prep sessions and these kinds of things. And we're going to kind of just give them the medicine, stand back, let them have an experience, and then kind of pick up the pieces and try to integrate that uh, after. So that is, I mean, I know I'm, I'm, I'm leaning into that a little bit, and but I'm, but I'm just want to frame it for people, right? This is kind of how it's been talked about. And then there's the other model, and and I'll call that the more ceremonial model that we've kind of known is let's a bunch of us fly to Costa Rica, and we don't really know each other, but we come into a big shared communal space have five days of, of a retreat and then fly home and kind of try to try to integrate that on our own at some level. And I think there's some gaps in both models. And uh, and I think the way the way that you started to frame it for me in this kind of understanding non-dualism uh, as, a, as a lens to help people somatically connect back into uh, who they are is a new way of kind of understanding. It, it's still medical in the sense of it's still using therapists and that therapeutic relationship of trust to build a connection, but it's, it's going far deeper into the body uh, as a kind of a, um, a somatic way of dealing with integration and what's even happening in the altered state. So I, I really loved your, your piece and I'd love for you to kind of unpack it. First of all, what, uh, what kind of got you to this place of, of saying, I, I wanna explore non-dualism as a really uh, interesting framework for psychedelic guides? Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, some of my background and training is, uh, you know, I moved out to California when I was 23 to get my master's in counseling psychology and simultaneously, you know, it being the Bay area and there being lots of sort of interesting consciousness expanding communities, found my way into a school of traditional Shakta Shaiva Tantra, so Kashmiri Shaivism, uh, and was really just very enamored of the cosmology of that orientation. It's a non-dual cosmology, and, and it was coming through a white-bodied male who had trained with Indian teachers, and so it was being updated through a Western lens, but I, I really fell in love with the articulation of 
you know, this, everything is consciousness and the human journey is one of coming to know oneself as consciousness and as the cosmos. And uh, there was a way in which that was very, very theoretical for me for a long time. And it wasn't until I started working in the realms of psychedelics and plant medicines that these concepts that felt very theoretical suddenly had a very embodied experiential reality to relate to. Um, you know, it's one thing to talk about interconnectedness and it's another thing to, to feel it. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, it integrated on a level. It became a, a lens that I had taken from a mental place to a, a way in which I was working it. It became a part of my practice of how do I, how do I relate to all phenomena as though we're all interconnected. And then, um, you know, some some years later, I was have been very very blessed in my life to have relationship to a an indigenous community or an indigenous family in the Mazatec um, people down in Mexico in Huautla de Jimenez, and I was down there uh, doing work with the psilocybin mushroom, and I had a Kundalini awakening, mm -hmm. um, which in you know, in Kashmiri Shaivism or in traditional Tantra is considered an act of grace, right? It's the descent of the divine feminine and it it awakens the sort of the, the beginnings of the light body. Mm. Very condensed way of putting it. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and it was, it was an experience that defied my rational understanding of how the world worked. Wow. And I felt the need to try to understand this. So I, I went and I wrote a dissertation about it. I love um, it. But yeah, like people yeah. do, you know, I'm just going to do yeah. uh, a dissertation yeah. on that. Yeah, I had this experience that was so profound. Yeah. It's going to take yeah. me three years to write about. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I, I you know, I have, a, a I guess, a, a strong mind um, and and a need to understand. And, and writing in, is one of the ways that I really deepen my own practice of integration and um, and so part of, part of that process was to go into a, a long review of the history of Tantra, um, which at that point in my life, I really had placed on a pedestal of like, oh, non-duality is the way. Um, and it, it served to deconstruct that pedestal for me because part of what I uncovered in that process was all the ways in which patriarchy and systems of oppression had co-opted this beautiful system of practice and used it to reify systems of power over and power under. And, and so it, it, it helped me kind of situate non-duality as a goal and also look at it through a critical, critical lens. Mm. Um, and part of what came from that was also a, a very clear understanding that um, an embodied transmission of non-duality or of mystical experience or of interconnectedness, however you want to phrase it, was for for me, and I can't I can only speak for myself, was essential in recognizing my own place uh, as a person who has been oppressed and a, as a person who participates in systems of oppression, you know, seeing, seeing how I am situated within that, um, both in my light and my shadow and seeing very clearly, you know, in the interconnectedness, like, oh, we're, we're all responsible for getting out of this together. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, the you know the whole point I, I of psychedelic work or of expanded states is is healing. You know, I, I sort of look at the world and I'm like, well, we're in a we're in a time of global cataclysm, and so what are we going to do about that? Because it kind of seems like we need a collective response. You know, individual absolutely, but there needs to be a collective response to what's happening. Otherwise, we're we're going to burn ourselves up. Um, and psychedelics seem to be one way in which people are doing that kind of healing work, right? It's transforming how we orient to what healing is. It's transforming the science of, it's transforming science. You know, that's one of the things that I love about it is it's challenging some of the most basic assumptions of science. Um, and basic assumptions of therapy. Like and basic like, assumptions of therapy, yeah, like the yeah. DSM five, you know, it, itself is like we it's predicated on you. We are going to give you a diagnosis. There's something inherently wrong with you. We've got to fix it. That whole model is being challenged by by psychedelics and and even your notion of your notion, this notion of non duality of wholeness of he like even the word in Greek uh, from the ancient Greeks and then even into the New Testament, the word to salvation means. Uh, uh, means wholeness, means coming mm-hmm. back together of bringing all these disparate parts back into wholeness. Mm-hmm. That's a very different model than kind of your, you know, you've got a problem, we've got to fix it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the the paradigm that we're operating in, for the most part, is a dualistic one. And that, um, not to say that all dualists cause, cause harm, but dualism as a system of logic is the logical basis for oppression, right? Because if we're separate and I'm more valuable than you, then of course I have to exploit you because I'm more valuable than you. And we all walk around in these egocentric bodies. Like we all have egos. That's Mm -hmm. an essential part of who we are. So, you know, how do we, how do we acknowledge that reality and then think about the paradigm that we're creating or wanting to live in? And, And what would it be if we really lived in a paradigm that was like, yeah, we're all interconnected. And so we all impact each other. And so how do we, you know, that I mean, that is fundamentally the ground of being to me, but I'm not going to force anyone else into that view. You know, you have to come to it in your own way. Mm-hmm. Um, but these so, expanded states can allow you to access it in ways. This is what you're saying is that this kind of psychedelic medicine and this approach can allow people to feel it not in their head anymore, but they can you know directly encounter the divine within them, not as a divine outside, but as the divine within them. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I think that's really where, you know, where the, the, the shift can be most fundamental or most primal because we, we identify so much with our bodies, right? Our, this is, this is me and everything outside of my skin suit is other on some very basic way, but, but to work with an entheogen, uh, you know, to to bring the as as the Mazatec would orient, you're bringing the spirit of the mushroom, the spirit of the goddess, into your body, and you're communing with her, or wow. communing with them, and and that kind of, you know, whether or not we're orienting to that understanding of what's happening, people are having mystical experiences working with psilocybin. Well, what is a mystical experience? It's something that transcends the boundaries of self and other, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and how incredibly valuable that is to um seeing clearly how stories of separation may or may not be serving our well-being mm. yeah and you're you're 
you know, I think there's this growing edge. I mean, I think about Roland Griffiths, right, who's this kind of the godfather of the research at John Hopkins. He's really the been the mastermind to really bring this research, uh, you know, into the forefront since, you know, 2000. In the last 23 years, he's been doing all this research. And, you know, a year ago, he, he gets terminal cancer. And now we hear him, you know, on podcasts talking and his final epitaph, in, in essence, when you ask him, okay, you've been doing this work now, Roland, you are the godfather of this. What is the area of that we need to lean into when it comes to psychedelics? And he says, as a scientist, he says, I came in as a scientist, and now I'm convinced that we've got to explore these mystical experiences. We've got to explore the spirituality behind this way of, uh, and I mean, it it's kind of brings chills, and you're like, here is a, a man at the end of his days with such gentleness and grace that he deals with his cancer and sees it as, you know, as a, as a kind of a gift of, of, of kind of, this is a gift for me, how do I embrace this? But in his last kind of epitaph he's talking about non-duality he's talking about the growing edge of spirituality and we don't have models in our psychology they have to become transpersonal we have to have bigger frameworks and this is kind of what your article was pushing at was that as we train guides it can't just be enough that we train guides in you know how to hold space and uh and you know and how, how to do ifs work those are all beautiful things but are we prepared for the experiences that people are having that are deeply mystical and deeply unitive and transpersonal and connecting with ancestors and ancestral trauma? And we don't have language for this. And you are saying we've got to begin to draw from some of these ancient traditions and tantric is one of them that has really given you a framework to understand what's happening in these altered states. Is that a is that an OK framing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I. Yeah you know, have to be very like specific in my language when I'm writing something for publication. And on a certain level, I think what I am suggesting is that it's it's ethically reckless not to train psychedelic guides in non-dualism. Wow. Because we're, because we're sending, people are having mystical experiences. So, you know, part of what I relate this to is if I'm in my role as a traditional therapist and I have specific training in, I don't know, eating disorders, and someone comes to me and they are struggling with not an eating disorder, but some other set of symptoms that's far out of my skill set. Right? It's, that's not the area that I'm practiced in. I refer them out. I don't take on someone that I don't have the capacity to hold or the experience or the appropriate training. So why are we sending psychedelic guides into holding people in mystical experience without a depth experiential knowledge of what mystical experience is. I mean, that, that would be the ultimate goal, or at least a working understanding of here's an intellectual framework that might help this person make sense of and understand what is happening to them. You know, I, I, I could also think about expanded states for psychedelic experience from a rites of passage frame you know, mm -hmm. and, and that we are precipitating a rite of passage for someone. But if we don't have that framework or understanding of what's happening, and then suddenly the person we're holding space for is in a dark night of the soul or, you know, a bad trip, mm -hmm. I put air yeah, quotes air around quotes, that yeah. because, uh, you know, I, I don't, what is a bad trip? Mm -hmm. um, but we ourselves as a guide are not situated in understanding of that. We're going to think this person is going crazy or mm -hmm. psychotic. We're going to lean back into the paradigm of pathology and lean towards medication and repression versus how do we help them move in and through this? How do we understand what 
is happening to them as a transformation or as a sacred process of rebirth or, you know, however mm -hmm. we want to orient to it. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that's uh, like your, your, you have this line that you, well, a phrase that I don't know if you coined it, but it looks like it's coined by you. Uh, somadelics uh <laughs> this idea of obviously it's a pairing of psychedelics into the body right soma and uh i i really understand that uh you know i, I we work in groups uh, so you know my wife and i have an organization called gathering groups and we're really trying to position ourselves in this kind of middle way of creating a trusted uh safe container prior to an altered state group experience so we work for 10 weeks to regulate nervous systems in a group um and so whence that kind of using polyvalent models of co-regulation so the nerve so we really work with the body how do we get people in a grounded connected authentic trauma-informed model so that then they can attach to each other rather than attaching to the guides so that when they're in the altered state they're attaching to each other as a group they have you know group uh, intentions as well as individual because we don't just heal alone we're wounded in community, we heal in community. And so we see the disparate parts of the people in our group as all different parts of our inner self. And so, you know, as we think about somatics, can you talk a little bit about somadelics and how you came up with that? And I think that's a beautiful way into uh, this conversation. Sure. I mean, that that word came through me, but I don't know that I can really, right? It came through. I'm sort of the yeah. vessel for it. Um, it. It came through when I was assisting a group. I was deep in meditation about my dissertation at that moment. And, and you know, as I was writing my dissertation, the reflections that were coming back to me from my committee were like, well, you know, you're critiquing Tantra, but it also seems like maybe you're kind of synthesizing something new. And do you have a name for that? And so that that was the name that came. So much. Somadelics, you know, and, and that is a riff on soma being the body, but soma also in the Vedas is mm. the, you know, the nectar of immortality. The elixir, yeah, the elixir, the elixir of elixir, life. Which some people think was a psychedelic mushroom. So, mm. you know, it's having fun with that. But, but Terrence for McKenna me, would say for sure in the food of the gods, that's what he. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I, I have a little bit of a bone to pick, I think, with the the emphasis on the mentality of psychedelics got you know god bless michael pollan for being such a beautiful bridge into the mainstream for folks who are new to psychedelic work or new to expanded states and i think psychedelics are about so much more than how to change your mind mm. right? it's really not and and the the reification of the separation of the mind versus body to me is very very problematic wow. um, so it Hey, by the way, you just blew my mind right there and blew my body because I like I've never thought about that of why that book has been so connective to a Western culture. It's yeah. I think exactly that it's talking about mind. And now I know that he means more than that, but it's not lost on me. You just brought this how to change your mind. And if you'd ask me, Peg, you'd say, Peg, what do psychedelics do? I say they they don't change your mind. Yes, you can find the molecules in the 5H2A receptor and we can talk neurobiology, but we have those same receptors in our gut and what we see is transformation of the body and our in getting out of our brain our, our head into our body wow yeah. your reference yeah. to that book just wow thank you <laughs> yeah well it, it you know i could look at it so many ways of of the body has an inherent aliveness to it you know and and um, then we get into really sort of complex questions about the nature of consciousness and who is the us who's inhabiting the body or is the body inhabiting us? And I, you know, but 
which maybe I could go into at some point, but uh, you know, I, I, my love of somatics and my love of somatic psychology, which came out of my own healing process was, is basically that the body has wisdom. And, mm-hmm. and if we listen to it, that can be wisdom very healing. The, body. Yeah. the wisdom of the Hillary body. McBride wrote a book called the wisdom of the body, a psychologist, really powerful book. Yeah. 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 You know, the, the body keeps the score, right? We're, we're, this there, there's a, a pulse of this happening in culture. Absolutely. And, and such brilliant somatic practitioners out there who are really helping to recover that inherent aliveness. You know, my, one of my mentors who founded the somatics program at CIS, he said something like, you know, the, the Descartian revolution cleaved the interiority from sensibility. And this idea that we've really been dismembered, you know, we've, we, in our separation from mind and body, we, we've stopped trusting our sensate landscape and how damaging that is to us and how much violence that that causes. And, um, and I think where psychedelics have such potency is they can help us kind of recover that sensibility or learn to trust it again, or really embrace it. And and so somatelics is, is in some ways a a prayer for that, you know, of, of what is that to really recover that in oneself and, and the implications for that, you know, both on the individual level, but this idea of integration as for me, at least the, the upliftment of every being, right? That, that as I recover that capacity in myself and I'm, I'm not walking around in a traumatized body that hopefully I use that agency and capacity in service of all beings and in really addressing where the need is greatest, which to me is in systems of oppression. So and and I, I love your connection between patriarchy and non-duality um, because mm-hmm. what you know you say in in one in in a, a line I think in that I don't know which paper it was but you talk about this external patriarchy that is a critic that oppresses but we've internalized that without even knowing it we have this inner patriarchy inside of all of us not just you know I have four daughters you know four grown daughters in their twenties now. And I have learned more than any, you know, any graduate work that I've done. I've learned more from them about the internalization of patriarchy. And it's, you know, I'm this open hearted, you know, uh, open to the divine feminine male uh, in their life. But it's not just me. There's this system that lives in their bodies and all of us and this inner critic. Right. You you mentioned you said every one of us has an inner critic. Where does that come from? That's the patriarchy. That's this inner oppressive voice that says you're not enough. You are separate. You or you don't belong, you know, and this is the exact kind of force that is this insidious force in our planet that's internalized in all of our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's all there, you know, so how how do we work with that skillfully and Mm -hmm. and I have a one of my like longer term sort of visions or curiosities is what would a uh, a marriage or an intersection of systems of restoration and repair, you know, practices of restorative justice as applied to psychedelic work for the purposes of addressing internalized patriarchy look like, you know, how could what we talk about right now, we're operating in a psychotherapeutic model of psychedelic work, but what, what would it be to train a guide in, I don't know, restorative justice right. or transformative justice or, yeah. and to, to, you know, how to think about those frames of working with a group and bring that inside. I mean, you just, you just named it, right. We, we project all of ourselves onto the group. So mm-hmm. how do we take that work and bring it back in? 
Yeah. Uh, and that's, and that's transformative when people like <clears throat> I'm, we're, we're, you know, we've been operating, you know, watching these, um, these groups transform, right? It's a, it's a 12 week process, but the transformation happens prior to any medicine. Like it's, and it, most people would say that the highlight of the experience is, is not the medicine day. It's not like, oh, that was the most transformative thing. They, I mean, almost 80 to 90% of people don't even really mention that when we say, how was this 12 week process? They're saying, this is the first time I felt seen. I felt held by a community. I felt like who I was was not judged. There was a non-judgmental space. I long for connection and community. This is what we're hearing. And then you add, it's as you said, it's a non-specific amplifier. The medicines amplify this feeling of connectedness and belonging that we can create in these group structures. And that's what begins to be healing. And I think I'd love your comments on, um, there's a psychedelic somatic institute, Saj Razni. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, he's, a, he's a therapist and he's developed this uh, psychedelic training institute, really looking at somatics. And he's interested in what's happening during the altered state. And he has this framework between primary and secondary consciousness. And in, in, in essence, he's saying, uh, and, I, and I think he's right on this. This is kind of uh, Peter Levine and some others that you know use polyvagal that will say, we have this primary consciousness, which is mammalian. We are designed, it's a, it's a body experience, right? We're designed for connection. There's signals in our body. And that we call that, that's a drive that's deeply kind of somatic. And then we have a secondary consciousness, which is our default mode network. And that it's beautiful because as humans, we can make poetry and music and we can think about driving and listen to podcasts and, and you know, do things that are not just driven by the needs of our body and what's going on in the, in the circuitry of our nervous system. And he says, but most of us, we have overemphasized the secondary consciousness and it's almost suppressed all of the material from the primary. Our, we have such a drive in the mind that suppresses all this. And what happens in an altered state is you take the lid off of the primary consciousness. So, it, you know, the body does keep score. But what happens in these altered states is that all of a sudden all the somatic material is going to come up. And if you don't know how to work with that, you're just going to either, hey, hands off, don't touch them. And, you know, and maybe just like a mother that's pregnant or a mother delivering a baby, there's an opportunity as a doula to work with that mother to help her give birth to what's happening. But just to say, I'm not going to touch, you know, because I'm we're really navigating these issues of consent and touch and altered state. It's a very complex place. And we really need to develop ethics and appropriate ways of interacting with people in these altered states with consent and with agency, but knowing that this is not an intellectual access. You are accessing somatic primary consciousness and shift, yeah. systems can shift in a person within four hours. Trauma can leave a body without them having to go back to the narrative of the trauma. They can yeah. shake, they can do all sorts of things uh, and so I want you to comment on kind of what you've seen in your work in altered states, whereas you see this somatic material coming up in the body. Yeah. It's, it's such a, you know, it's one of those places where I'm like, well, it's always somatic, right? Like, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. it's always inherently somatic because we're, we live in a body and, and even if we're in sort of a mental process, everything is always somatic. So that it, it's sort of feels like a redundancy for me of mm. in my own experience, everything is somatic. <laughs> People are like, Oh, I had such a visual journey. I'm like, well, but, but what did that feel like? Um, you know, because and where it, did you feel it? And where did you feel right. it? And you know, where did it take you? Because the body is the ground of being. Um, mm. So it, 
it's an interesting it's just an interesting place to start from i mean where it, where it brings me is i've been reading a lot about memory i've been reading peter levine's uh, trauma and memory book yeah. which is great and and thinking a lot about trauma as stuck energy or sort of stagnancy in a system um and then that that stagnancy creating kind of a rigidity in our innate fluidity um, between, you know, our our secondary state of consciousness and our primary state of consciousness. Um, you know, and then, then then I mix metaphors because I'm thinking a lot about memory and that word mem, the Hebrew letter mem is one of the, the three maternal letters of the Hebrew alphabet, right? In Jewish mysticism, you have the three maternal le letters out of which the whole world is created and mem the roots of memory and menses and meter and sort of all the things we get our, the rhythm of our consciousness come from is associated with water. So this idea that memory, memory is, a, is a, a kind of fluidity. And we know this because memory, what we know about memory is that it's not at all stagnant, that it is actively constantly being reshaped. And every time we recall memory, we're actually creating a whole new set of neurons to encode it. Mm -hmm. So it's, <laughs> The, the idea stories that we tell ourselves, that happened right? in the, yeah it's you know it's, and then we get into like well really what is time and you know mm -hmm. what's the function of memory and um one way i could think about memory or if i think about water as our emotional landscape right from a from an indigenous perspective or a jewish mystical perspective water would be our, our heart center, our emotional landscape, sort of the connective tissue, um, that, that if trauma is a stagnancy or a crystallization or a hardening, that one of the, the beautiful things that psychedelics can potentiate is the capacity to soften, to open, to release, to, mm -hmm. to give us more innate fluidity in how we move between our primary and our secondary state of consciousness, such that we're back to the recovery of the body, right? That, that we're actually embracing this, this body that we live in and, and, and to acknowledge that that's also very difficult. You know, we live, we live in a, capitalistic culture that values overworking and not resting and and overriding and well how many cups of coffee did you have today and um, the 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 larger culture that we're situated within really doesn't support that kind of work no, it does it's, not no that it's very very hard and very very radical to actually integrate that and to, mm -hmm. to make that shift and also a privilege you know it, it usually requires a fair amount of privilege and resource to be able to not work 40 hours a week or to right. whatever it is. Um, so that's, that's a powerful, you know, idea We're we're saying that in order to be healthy in our modern world, we need to slow down and work less and have more time for play connection, uh, you know, family, uh, you know, friends, these, these are the things that will allow our body to feel at home in, on this planet Earth. Uh, you know, in connection with nature. But in order to do that, we have ramped up this consumer, you know, and capitalist society such to a, a ratcheted degree that most people can only survive if they are both working full time, you know, and maybe we wealthy enough to get a nanny and, you know, and all of it. And that's like just the norm in our, you know, and that's, this is just to survive. This isn't like, you know, this is just to have, you know, a little home in a suburb somewhere uh, in, in, you know, in North America, you have to just be working this intense level and your body 
body is what's suffering. And when our body yeah. suffers, our, we, we lose the connection to who we are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the body is the sacred vessel, right? Yeah. It's the ground it's of being, suffering. you said. The, the, the body is the ground of being. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, 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 you know, I fell in love with the tantric view because I came out of, I grew up on the East Coast, right outside DC, and that's a very image-focused place. And so, you know, I got a lot of messages about what a white female body should look like and be like and how it should operate. And um, when I encountered the tantric view of the body as a sacred vessel, that was radical. You know, what do you mean this body's sacred? I'm not supposed to starve it and make it fit and design our clothes and have it look a certain way and be just the object of the male gaze. And what do you wait? It's sacred and I'm supposed to take care of it? Like, and listen to it are you sure you know um, but but i think that's the move that is needed at large you know we're, we're just to survive in culture so many of us have to hit override on whatever that message is you know it's different depending on how you're situated and what your body looks like and its history um but to to learn to trust mm. trust what is happening inside is huge it's, it's radical trust, desire. You talk about desire as that, which brings wholeness. Like your body has desires, sexual yeah. food, you know, sleep. Yeah. All of these are, are things that the body is asking for. Many of us are just oblivious. We don't even know when, what the feeling like when our body says, I need to go to the bathroom. We don't even, you know, we're not even aware. That's a signal I'm listening to. We do it every day yeah. or food. Yeah. We don't, we just shove our face full of food. We're not listening to signals that our body yeah. is giving us. And so I love yeah. this idea of desire at the core of tantric is that our yeah. body's desires are good and are, and how do we work with them to bring us to wholeness rather than suppress it? You know, so much of Christianity has been about suppressing uh, desires in the body and disengaging yeah. the body from the mind, you know, that to, to be with God is to just be in this kind of mind place of prayer rather than an embodied place. So right. I, I think there's huge insight from this tantric tradition. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, so in the in the one of the origin stories of of Tantra, right at the beginning, everything is consciousness, you know, sort of in the void or in space. And and then what actually sets the universe in motion is that consciousness experiences the desire to to know itself. That's literally right. And and to do that, it it goes from nothingness, from sort of cosmic unity into two. It goes from oneness into two. It it splits right? So it can gaze upon itself, but that split creates polarity. It creates positive and negative or masculine and feminine or dark and light or however, whatever the, you know, the poles you want to create. And that polarity creates charge, right? We know this on, on an electromagnetic level. When we have two, two poles, we have charge. And that charge is what creates motion in the universe. So, so to the tantrics, you know, desire is a vehicle because desire is the, the the movement between the two poles mm -hmm. and so you can follow desire back to its original impulse which is to know yourself as the fullness of consciousness mm -hmm. um, you know it's not a problem you just don't know yourself as god yet which is mm -hmm. like a, a very affirming way to relate to desire um, versus yeah. know your desire is bad and wrong and you're going to go to hell 
<laughs> right. Oh man, it's such a limiting and it's so small and it can, can it fragments like even the the framing of, you know, a, a notion of an exterior god uh that is going to now punish and uses fear as the mechanism uh you know of othering, right? I mean, it just it's a, it's another vehicle of othering, right? These these systems of uh, of oppression and religion has been part of that and uh they've just taken on this othering and everyone's other, right? And we see that alive and well in politics, we see it in yeah. all sorts of things. And there's psychedelics have this unique ability to bypass our kind of othering framework that we set up as these protective ways. I've got to keep myself safe. And psychedelics bypasses that consciousness and it goes right into the primary. And it says, to, and you feel, as you said before, you can feel a sense of connection and oneness that you are part of the divine, that you are, are you know, you're gazing at your wholeness. You are experiencing it in your body, not in a mental construct, but in an embodied way. And I, I remember my first psychedelic big high dose experience on psilocybin when I, did, I met the divine, you know, feminine and it mm -hmm. encountered me and it entered me. And you talk about this kind of a transformative experience. It was a, a deeply feminine experience for me and it, it radically changed my life. And it will be a before and after, uh, a mm -hmm. sense of finally my head and heart connected. You know, I had been living in my head, doing my whole life was about, you know, mind. And all of a sudden the feminine came in and, and allowed me to have this connection. And it's like, oh, I never realized that this, that there was a, a different way of being in my body. And that's just, I don't know how to explain that, but that's this non-dual experience of oneness. That is an experience. Yeah. It's not a something to believe. It's an experience yeah. to have. Yeah. Yeah, radical empiricism, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's such an it's such an interesting to me what part of what you're pointing at is the the before and after of the rite of passage, right? Mm -hmm. That the the whole point of a rite of passage or that rite is it it marks a threshold crossing from which there's no return. You right. can never go back to being never. the person who's just mind-centered. Right? Yeah. And and I think there's a whole layer that wants to come into psychedelic work through that framing that helps us understand a more nuanced relationship to informed consent. How do you help someone consent to something like that? Mm. You know, I think that's a really interesting question of, mm. you know, you're going to be totally different, but you don't know how you're going to be different. Right. Are you okay with that? Really what are you. they saying yes to, you know, by what saying, are they saying yes to? Yeah. Right. Yeah. How, right. And how do you help someone discern where their yes and their no is? You know, that's uh, uh, in in sort of social justice organizing, there's um, what's called principled dissent. The, you know, how do you surface principled dissent in a group? Because dissent isn't a problem. It's actually information about how the group needs to complexify and change. And so if you bring that internally, how do you surface someone's principled dissent? You know, where are all of their parts kind of saying yes or saying no, and which parts need attention to have a full yes moving into a psychedelic experience. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I love that, uh, you know, Dick Schwartz talking about parts work, you know, he, you know, he says, even, I mean, I know he's working with maps and doing, you know, psychedelic work using parts. And I, I think parts right. work is for us. I mean, it's the most accessible map that, you know, if you're going to be doing this work, part, just get into parts work. It's one of the most easiest ways to understand you know how we have these different parts and how we can begin to find unity and wholeness and compassion for these parts but he says that uh when it, when it comes to this kind of parts work 
He says that when we move into these, you know, into these places, we need to get full permission from all your managers, all of the yes. managers that are protecting you for your whole life. They've kept this material, these parts safe. They've said, we're not going to go into these places. It'll destroy us. And they've been very rigid as protectors and they've helped you. But they, you need to get their permission before you go into these places. And that's a really yes. interesting concept of how to move inside prior to an altered state experience in, before you're on medicine to really get consent that this is what we're going to be doing. We're going to be going yeah. down to these deep parts and we're going to be reclaiming some of these younger traumatized parts. But I need to get your, the protectors on board. And that's it's an interesting concept to talk about. Can you comment on how you use uh, IFS and parts work in your psychedelic work? Sure. Well, I'm, you know, I'm not formally trained in IFS, so I, I, I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily a, a practitioner of it so much as a, a scholar and an appreciator of it. And um, I've received it in my own, my own personal work. Um, Consent is such a huge topic, you know, and, and I think I relate to IFS work through sort of, once again, a lens of systems of oppression of who's in power over and who's in power under and um, how to take those relationships of hierarchy and bring them, you know, back into the circle of the village, so to speak. And so everyone, everyone has a sacred place in the circle and everyone's voice is as valuable as anybody else's voice. And, um, I think that work can be done during a psychedelic session, certainly. And um, when someone is moving towards an expanded state experience of any kind uh, or any kind of ceremonial work, you know, having that full bodied yes is, is mm. so important. So important. Um, because consent is the, the, ground, uh, the ground upon which we're building the new paradigm. Mm -hmm. or moving towards a new paradigm. We're trying to move away from systems of exploitation and violence and oppression towards whatever it is that's emerging. And, and part of how that's getting operationalized, at least in my mind, is moving with consent. So if I have a no, that's not a problem. It's just a clear boundary, you know, and either for me to move with that no or get curious about that no and why isn't a yes and how might I move it towards a yes and what kind of work needs to happen there. Um, so it's, it's a, a way of moving that honors the integrity of every being, I think. Um, so that process of consent and informed consent is, is a huge part to me of any psychedelic preparation. Mm. Uh, and how do you, you know, and how do you do that? You know, in, I mean, again, we're, I'm working this, trying to work this out in real time as, you know, we right. working because we, you know, we have this group process and, you know, for us, um, group is one of the most, like you talk about the leveling of hierarchy. Our facilitators are not necessarily, it's not a therapy model. We've, we've intentionally said, no, this is not therapy. This is a, a community of practice where we all are going to submit week after week to the process of uncovering, you know, our, 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 our parts and letting that come on display facilitators and all so that we can get into this cohesion of safety and connection so that we can then say, Hey, 
let's talk about let's talk about consent here as a group what are we what are you open to what is going to happen in this altered state how you know and we have areas of of touch you know hands feet and head and that's you know they have to sign and there's things and we have you know it's a group process so there's 15 people in the room eight, eight people journeying and five or six therapists but getting consent prior to an altered state is really important but what we're realizing too is it you know in the altered state people will because they're open they want to change their consent and at this pace we can't we say no this was yeah. the consent has to be given prior to altered state and this can't change the dynamic can't change in the altered state and uh, and so how do you explain that to people you know and and not leave them hanging if they will like hey i really want this and you're like you didn't consent to that before like how do you work that out just practically yeah well one i think there's some really wonderful frameworks for consent out there i'm in this moment, particularly enamored of Betty Martin's wheel of consent. She comes out of the, the sex work yeah, community, yeah. but, but I, I think, uh, you know, I, I don't remember having someone give me a nuanced understanding of consent as a teenager. There was sort of like, you should say yes before you have sex, but that was it. Right. Um, and, and, and the, the nuances of what consent actually is and means also goes back to the body you know if someone can't feel their body how do they consent i don't know because they can't feel what's happening um so so giving people somatic grounding or helping people find their way back into their body with some ease i think is a one deeply important element and then and then within that a lot of a lot of affirmation and permission to say no right? situating no not as a problem or a negative issue but really just this is this is how we're flowing this is how we're co-creating and no isn't a doesn't create problems it just gives us information about how we need to move um so kind of moving out of the idea that yes is good and no is bad mm -hmm. but i think mm -hmm. many women um yeah. come in with right we're always supposed to say yes to the male desire right. um, mm. you know and and then within that I mean, practically, there there are elements of exploring someone's history of touch. If touch is a something that's going to be explored during a psychedelic or an expanded space, well, what is their history of relationship to touch, and are there, you know, do they not want to be touched at all? And they're really clear about that from the beginning, or are there places that they know they want to be touched? Are they, you know, sort of what's the what's the ground that one someone is entering in? And then what are the agreements? Mm -hmm. Consent to me comes back to the, what are the agreements that the group sets about how they're going to be in relationship to each other, physically being one of those. And, and, and then finding some level of okayness with when in a session, someone wants to change their, you know, they want more touch than what they've agreed to. I'm like, yeah, I, I really hear that. And it must be really hard for me to, to, you know, to not have me, whatever it is, putting my hands on your feet. But remember, we talked about this agreement and, you know, my job as a facilitator is to hold that container and that agreement. Right. And I'll, yeah. I'll be right next to you with whatever comes up for you, but I'm not going to violate that. Yeah. I'm not going to, what you know, and I'd be very curious, like, what is it in that person that wants to set it at one place and then shift it? You know, uh, is there is there an old trauma there? Is there some kind of overriding of boundaries that's coming up that's wanting to be tended to? Wow. Um, 
I, I love that you flip that around to say, huh, isn't that interesting? There's an opportunity like, you know, this frame of everything is medicine, even yes. our changing of these things, that's material to come up to work with, right? Totally. Like, why, why, why did that change happen? What was happening that this, you know, that, that, you know, that's an amazing opportunity to kind of allow them to lean into that and say, I want you to sit with that now. Can you sit with that discomfort of, you know, having set this boundary here and we are here to hold that container for you, to hold that consent that you gave us. And this is the container that we will, and we're okay. We're not going to take it personally that they might feel frustrated that, you know, whatever, it wasn't done exactly the way they wanted, but the container was, was maintained. What's your, you know, I, you know I've, I've talked quite a bit about this kind of the group dynamic that I think is really important in, in psychedelics. And I think it's in my, in my framework, at least for a community organizer, this is one of the, you know, this is one of the ways that psychedelics is going to be accessible uh, and, uh, and financially viable for, you know, people to journey and not just for finances, but for all these other kind of things of ethics of consent of non power dynamics of therapists and participant uh, and, you know, and, and co regulation. I mean, I could list 10 reasons why I think groups are really going to be the forefront in the next 10 years of how psychedelics will be delivered in our communities. What's your comment and what's your experience with groups and what are your, yeah, what are your thoughts on that process? Well, I mean, I love groups. <laughs> mm. um, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think from a financial and logistical perspective, just it will make more sense that way. And there's so much potency and learning that can happen in groups. I think the caveat I would add is, you know, I don't, I don't want to affirm groups as like better than individual work, right? Every, every form has a, a place and a purpose. And, and I could, can honor that if someone has a very intense trauma history and is needing to do really targeted trauma work in an individual way, that an individual session really might be what serves there. Yeah. Um, or, you know, the the form should serve the intention and the purpose, maybe is the larger mm -hmm. comment. Um, that being said, groups fascinate me. You know, mm -hmm. the, the phenomenon of the group field and what can be potentiated in a group field is extraordinary. And um thank you like the i just hear your energy and i'm leaning into the screen yeah because <laughs> i i'm listening to podcasts and, and no one's talking about this you know yeah. people are really stuck in the medical model of tooth and no one's understanding do you have any idea the exponential factor of what happens when eight people have shared intentions over 10 weeks and all come into a, a shared space you have never seen it i've never i've done hundreds of journeys with people i've never seen anything like group dynamics when they're done well with consent and a model it's unbelievably powerful there's nothing like it in an in individual one-on-one -on -one. the power that happens for healing connection I just had a yeah. meeting with, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm connecting with some uh, uh, indigenous, it's called Sacred Circles, and they are an indigenous organization in Canada that is running psilocybin groups on reserve for First mm. Nations trauma survivors. And we have a problem of, you know, like lots, but we have residential school survivors in Canada who have been just deeply traumatized culture of people. And they say, we have to heal in community. This is, we, mm -hmm. you know, we, we're not interested in the Western medical model. We take our these these people, these elders. We 
you know, allow them to have these use psilocybin and we bring their family around and they look into their eyes while they're in these altered state and say, you belong, you are loved. And then they're held and they create this form structure where they literally hold their elder, uh, you know, and phys everyone's got their hands on them and the healing of the trauma that happens in these communal spaces. I mean, I'm in tears as he's telling me these stories and I'm like, this is what good looks like, you know? Um, and so, yeah, there's a power in these group models that we really haven't explored and studied to their their full degree. Yeah, I mean, it, it evokes two two pieces for me. One is thinking about um, Michael Mead mm -hmm. um, and a story he shared at one point, you know, about about the use of rites of passage in in traditional or the old the old ways, right? Where where uh, an expanded state of consciousness would really come to serve a person who was sick or unwell. And if someone was, whatever that means, someone is unwell in their body, mind, soul, the whole village gathers, the whole village is like, and say this person has caused harm. Thank you. You know, thank you for this opportunity for us to, as a community, do this healing work. And the, the circle centralizes around this person who's maybe caused harm or is sick or is unwell. And the whole village holds that ceremony in, in the same way that a rite of passage traditionally wouldn't be considered complete until one had returned from the underworld and had their gifts mirrored to them by the community. Like it's, it's in the community that the integration happens or that the transformation is full. And, you know, I think there's a, for me, a question of there's all this information and talk about integration. And is that because we don't have a village? Yes. You know, we've lost yes. You know, our village model. And so now we have to actually do something else in order to integrate this information. Wow. Yeah. Right. I, I just, oh, that's such a powerful idea that you're bringing up. You know, like we've, we've you know, I, I, I read this book, uh, Lost Connections by Johan Hari. And he argues that the rise of SSRIs, he's this journalist and really beautiful book. And he says at the core of our, our mental illness crisis is this, this, this sense of we, we don't have people in our life that are really deeply meaningful. We have people we hang out with, we watch hockey games, we go to the bar with, we do whatever, even our family members, you know, love, we cook, we drive the kids around, but we don't have these deep, intimate places of connection that's been lost. And so because of that, we're fragmented and alone. And we and so all this anxiety and fear comes up. And so he says he watches the rise of, of SSRIs, these anti-anxiety, anti anti-meds, over the last 10 years as a direct relationship to the loneliness and isolation that we really feel on the inside. And I, I think he's bang on. And I think what we're really seeing is that the reason for me that psychedelics are so profound right now is that it's really answering the deepest call of our being, which is we are disconnected from ourselves, from each other, and from our natural world, from the planet. And, uh, and psychedelics begin to call us back to wholeness, to unity, both with our internal parts, IFS language, both with others in community, and then what, what's larger, which is this mystical, this something larger than even us, you know? And that is that holds promise with these medicines in ways I've never seen anything else be able to kind of crack that. Yeah, yeah, and me neither. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that is that is the issue, right? And and it's so interesting thinking about that the that book where I think so so many of us um, have this idea where we're we're embedded in this individualistic paradigm where our depression and anxiety is our problem, 
that we have to fix rather mm -hmm. than, oh no, that's actually quite a reasonable response to the state of the world. Like That's right. Of course, living, the answer is of course. Yeah, we're living in a world in crisis. Like you should be depressed and anxious if yeah. you don't have a deeper sense of connection to meaning and purpose and community and the earth. You know, yeah. that's, a, that's reasonable. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> your body is responding appropriately. Yeah. Um, wow. So kind of that, that uh, you know, I think one of the, the beautiful things psychedelics are showing us or teaching us is the, it's affirming the sacred pain of healing, you know, mm. that, that, that healing is not always about the love and the light. Wow. And in fact, that like pain is a profound teacher or can be a profound teacher. Um, so kind of on a level taking us off of our, our, our desired pedestal of immortality and being like, no, you're, you're going to die, you mm. know? But you're gonna get become part of the earth, so it's right. it's okay. But like, you know, mm. yeah. I even think of the metaphor working. of like psilocybin itself. Like mushrooms are a decomposer; they break down material so that new life can come. Right? I mean, <clears throat> you're taking this, you're taking the divine. You know, I see it for me as a deeply spiritual person. This is a sacrament. Like this is yeah. an entheogen. You know, for yeah. me, it's like as you come into this move, this work, you are taking the divine into you. Just like you know, Jesus says, "This is my body, broken for you." This is what it is. You know, you're bringing in the divine inside of you, and you're allowing it to break down the systems of oppression, of resistance, of trauma, of pain. That's what it's going to break down, so a new life can emerge. So there has to be a death, and there has to right. be kind of resurrection. I mean, these are. These are just large archetypal themes in every culture, right? And it's yep. uh, it's so uh, it's so profound. But even in the mushroom itself, is this metaphor for us to understand as we take this in? What is it going to decompose in my life? What do I need to let go of? What is holding me back from being, you know, a, a connected whole person? So I mean, I just. I love how the way you are navigating these waters because it really resonates with me on how we can prepare people and guides to do this kind of work in a communal way. And I think that's really important. Yes. It's a, I mean, it's such a great question, right? And and it it comes back to for me, you know, well, how are we preparing people to do this in a group way? And and in that, and and you know, I, I think the psychedelics really are going to at some point represent an emergent spiritual practice if they don't already. Mm -hmm. um, so recognizing that thrust in what's happening. And, um, you know, I wrote that article, mysticizing medicine, sort of I riffed on some, yeah. some talk that had happened in Harvard that was like medicalizing mysticism. And I was like, no, no, <laughs> mm. that's not the way that we're going with this. Like right. we are not going to compress this into the medical model that will not work. Mm. Like mysticism fundamentally defies compression. Mm. Um, so how to, you know, it seems somewhat inevitable that that is happening. Um, so how do we look at what's happening and say, wow, you know, there's like, there's thrusts of religious experience and there's thrusts of non-dualism and there's thrusts of social and transformative justice. And so rather than trying to like fit all those into our medical model, you know, how do we acknowledge that the scientific model is one way of looking at things and, mm -hmm. and just like, the indigenous bodies of wisdom have a different way that has a lot of value. How do we bring in these other ways of looking? How do we remain humble and be like, huh, I, w I wonder what that way of looking might have to teach me. Um, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, there's this framework called two-eyed seeing. I don't know if you've heard of that phrase. Mm -hmm. um, it was developed by uh, some Indigenous scholars on the west coast of Canada here. And it's it's using, you know, one one lens of the best of, of kind of Western science and to draw from that, but with the other lens of an Indigenous way of understanding the world, that, you know, the, being, the, the interconnection of all things, and to bring those two eyes into kind of focus, into a, creating a new way of seeing. And it's not a kind of bracketing out, and we're not trying to get back to like, if we can only get back to this, you know, non science framework it's like well we can't do that we have to transcend this is part of our evolution but we have a new opportunity to bring in and say not like you know let's medicalize mysticism it's how do we begin these two-eyed seeing how do we begin the best of western uh you know trauma-informed lenses with these indigenous practices of communal healing and connection and uh and, and i think that's kind of what you're advocating with the, in your paper on non-duality and and uh i i found that so inspiring uh so i um you know, a couple more questions. One is, what would be um, for you as kind of in your somadelics, uh, what is kind of some of the integration practices that you recommend to people, um, kind of embodied ways to take their experience into their day-to-day -day life? Mm, it's different for every person. Um, that being said, uh, I can speak for myself. I, the day after journey, if I have the space and time, I have a almost four-year-old, so my space and time tends to be compressed these days, but um, like to write down everything I remember. Writing is a really, for me, again, as I said, a powerful place, but to, to take all of that sort of what's stirring around inside and to try to articulate it in linear, relatively linear thought um, is helpful both in kind of grounding some of that material. And, you know, when we're in the middle of a psychedelic experience, we're like, how could I ever forget this? This is so <laughs> profound. This is the most profound thing I've ever encountered. And then two weeks later, you're like, what was that thing yeah. again? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just the reality of of human experiences is, is it doesn't always stay. And so um, often we forget insights that we think we're going to remember. And so writing them down as a, a place to refer back to is helpful. Um, for me, it is, you know, some of it is the, the art and the practice of, well, what was emergent in a person's journey relative to their intention, you know, back to the intention, well, your intention directs your attention, as Ralph Metzner would say, and, and then what emerges in sort of light of those two laser beams of focus and, and whatever emerges kind of then how is that taken and brought out into one's life in a really bite-sized accomplishable way mm. like um you know we come back from a journey and we're like oh i need to sell all of my belongings and live mm. off grid or in nature and meditate for an hour every day meditate for an but hour every day and i'm like well, yeah. yes do you do <laughs> have an hour how much do you meditate now you know <laughs> um so understanding that that these insights can be kind of like long-term goals and then what is the step-by-step -step progression in between here and there you know if you really want to work up to an hour a day well maybe start with two minutes right. you know, three days a week right. um, so helping and this is where i think that the 
coaching actually is going to become a huge asset because coaches aren't operating in a psychotherapeutic paradigm that's sort of as a therapist, I'm in my unconditional positive regard of my client and wherever you are is fine. You know, I'm not, I'm not their accountability in that way, but I think the coaching paradigm where there's sort of gentle, loving nudges towards growth might, might really serve mm. integration. Um, and I think that that coaching model, which I really like, you said that, um, again, as we level that into these group models, you know, integration, like what we're finding is that integration is happening um, very naturally. Like so many, everyone talks about integration. We flipped the paradigm and said, what about prep? We've done 10 weeks yes. of prep for nervous system regulation. So that what happens in, after, in the altered state then is that there's a natural bond that happens to each other. They stay, they don't need the, the therapists or facilitators. They stay in a connected space meeting outside of after this journey. They've done four integrations. They're meeting and now they're going for coffee. Now they're doing this. Now they're in this guy. Now they're going for walks. Now they're, you know, now they're journaling and sharing things together. And I'm like, oh, you just found, you know, don't attach to me, attach to each other. Form a, form a community of like-minded people that you can embody this material with on a day-to-day, week-to-week way. And that's, you know, if to just say it's, you got to be the therapist and now you're paying $200 an hour and our three sessions are over and now your integration's over, you know, like right. to me, there's something deeply flawed, but this coaching model in a container that has longevity to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think what you just named, right. It's like how the idea that integration is a specific period of time versus I think it really is an ongoing practice of the movement towards wholeness, you know, and, and how is that embedded in one's life or highlighted in particular ways in light of a psychedelic experience. Um, but it really is about the community that, that holds someone and, and can hold for the transformation. You know, we're not, educated about rites of passage or about transformation in mm-hmm. in those kinds of overt or transpersonal ways. And, and so to have a community who's aware of that, who can be like, yeah, you're, you're in a rebirth process. Congratulations. You know, struggle um, is normal. Birth yeah. pains are normal. We applaud this. There's something beautiful arriving in your life, you know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, I mean, I think that I would love to see more communities holding that mm-hmm. over that more embedded into the model of psychedelic practice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, when we're when we're done this call sometime, I'd love to talk offline about, you know, um, the inner workings of, of this model we're working with. And um, yeah. I love your insight. I love your feedback. And I think yeah. there's something really important here. And I love the way that you're leaning into these, you know, these, these models, both of non-duality uh, and uh, tantric and group as really, you know, some, some models that can really help us um, really answer some of these deep calls of, of consent, ethics, integration. Um, a lot of that is, it can be answered in these new models. So I'm, I'm really excited that we've been having this conversation. As we kind of wrap things up, what are, uh, what are some things you're working on that really excite you these days as you're kind of, uh, I know you're writing a book. How's that going? <laughs> it's a long birth process. Okay. Um, okay. Um, yes, I'm writing a book, uh, sort of about, well, about the the rite of passage of becoming a guide. Not mm-hmm. so much memoir of of looking at different, I would say, expressions of power 
mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, desire, creativity, cataclysm, structure, symbolization, sort of these innate powers that we have as humans that also exist in the world and, and understanding those powers as places that are need to be well cultivated in oneself mm-hmm. uh, in the process of becoming a psychedelic guide and being a psychedelic guide. And, and in that kind of a reframing of <laughs> this idea that like, well, like, I got my map certificate and I'm a guide. Right, right, right. I got my training. I did, I did, I did more head knowledge, you know. Yeah, I did that, you know, and and now now I'm a guide to this larger movement Mm. of, we actually don't live in a static world where we're just our epithets or our titles. And, and as we know from quantum physics, matter is actually an interactive process of being and becoming. It's not, we're never, you know, we're never stuck so when we and then thinking about that word guide as an archetype Mm. and this idea that when we say that we're a guide that when we claim that title we're we're claiming actually an energetic container for our own transformation Mm. that is both offering that to other people but but being guided in in many ways and so Mm. as we become a guide (laughs) we're being worked by that and we're evolving what that archetype is. You know, I think we're, we're really needing to move away from this idea that a guide is a guru or the all-seeing, all-knowing, yeah. whatever it is, towards a more contemporary understanding. So that that's part of what that book is about and therefore working me in the process of bringing it into being. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, that's such a needed area because I think... Um, uh, you can only go as deep as your your guide has explored. You know their own their own blockages, their own issues, and our guides are you know these these people that are opening the way. But this is not uh, this is not an academic exercise. This is self exploration. Then is are there ongoing ways of working with the medicine in a communal way for guides so that they can also be hold these space, knowing that their vessel. I mean, this is. You know, this is kind of shamanism stuff, right? Where, you know, my indigenous brothers and sisters will say, um, yeah, to be an elder in our community takes 20 years of apprenticeship. And I'm like, what? Yeah, because this is not about knowledge. This is about a lived life uh, that you need to be apprenticing in a community. And then the community verifies that you're a guide. You don't care. I get I'm a guide. And they go, no one says that. The community says, you are now a guide. You are an elder. That's a very different framework that the community gives you that title. You don't give it to yourself. I think there's really some profound models there for us. And uh, anyone can call themselves a psychedelic guide, right? But that doesn't mean anything. So I think there's your book on this work. I'm really excited to see where that's going. Well, thank you so much. Uh, This has been a beautiful conversation. I think you and I are going to have to continue to have some more dialogues because I have so many more questions. But uh, Thanks so much for coming on Unveiled Podcast today, uh, Valerie. You can um, um, you can look at what, what's the best way to get a hold of you. What's the what's your website? How can people find your right. work? Yeah, you can find me. I have two web presences. Um, one is valeriamccarroll.com, which is which is my website, and then also somadelics.com, mm. or you can find me on Instagram at somadelics. 
I like that. So medallics. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I love your, I, I really like your writing, uh, myst, uh, mysticizing medicine, incorporating non-dualism into the training of psychedelic guides. That's how we started, but we went all over the map. What a beautiful conversation. Thanks for the work you're doing in the world. And thanks for how heart open you are. And I can just feel that presence from you today. And this is what we need in our world. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Okay, bye-bye.